John chapter 11. We have been going through John chapter 11 for a little while now, and John chapter 11 revolves around the raising of a guy named Lazarus, and the thrust of the whole passage is where Jesus, about midway through, claims to be the resurrection and the life. We saw that Jesus heard of Lazarus' sickness and did not go to him immediately, but actually wanted Lazarus to die as it was going to be because it was going to show his power. It was going to show who Jesus really is. So he waits to go visit. Lazarus does indeed die. He then goes. He has a conversation with Martha, Lazarus' sister, and then he has a conversation with Mary, Lazarus' other sister. Then he goes to the tomb, and we said that as he is going to the tomb, just before he goes and he has great anger, he shook with anger and even wept, and that is not completely because he was sad about death. He was going to raise Lazarus, and about three to four minutes later, it was because of sin that he is angry, uh, was angry about, and it leads to death and destruction. Sin always leads to death and destruction. It's never a good thing. Then we saw that it continued and he actually goes and for the glory of God, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, Lazarus, come out. And we said last week that we're thankful to some degree that he said Lazarus because if he wouldn't have been specific, then all the tombs would have given up the dead because his word has power. We then saw verses 45 and 46 that a lot of the Jews who came with Mary, they believed. And there was a group, there were some that did not believe and they ran to the Pharisees. And that's where we stopped. So we're going to pick up today in verse 47 and work through the text. I will read it out loud. You can follow along quietly. Starting in John chapter 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Some believe in Jesus as he just raised Lazarus from the dead. And incredible that some do not. They see him actually raise someone from the dead and they still don't believe. So they run to the Pharisees and they tell. 
So here's what the Pharisees do. It's like we have a little insight into their little secret meeting. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This would be probably the Sanhedrin or at most of them. This is a, the highest court in all the land for the Jewish people. The highest court. Now, there were the Romans who were ruling over everything, but as far as the Jewish people, this was their highest court. This is where they would go to make things happen. So they gather the council. They've got to figure out what to do, and it's the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are actually two different groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they would have been disagreeing with each other all the time and not really liking each other. But isn't it interesting that they will get together when it comes to Jesus because they hate him more? So they'll get together and they're talking. We've got to come up with a plan. What are we going to do? So they get the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Notice they don't say, this man's faking it. He's tricking people. He's doing things. They say, no, no, he's performing many signs. And again, that word signs is used because what do signs do on the road? They point us to something. They describe something. The signs, the miracles that Jesus has been performing are indeed signs pointing to the fact that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. So they acknowledge that He's doing these signs and they still don't believe. Because it has not yet, still going back to earlier in John, that has to come from above and they're not there yet. And they have this bitterness in their hearts. Verse 48, here's what they say. If we let him go on like this, if we don't stop this Jesus from doing all this stuff, if we don't step in, everyone will believe in him. That's their life pursuit right now. To stop people from believing in Jesus. That still exists today, if you didn't know. We've got to stop this. Why? Why are they so against it? Look at the rest of the verse. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans, the ones who are ruling, will come and take away both our place and our nation. Right off the bat, you can go, oh, well, that's a pretty good thing. And to some degree it may be, but that doesn't seem to be what the tone of this text is. Their place, most likely referring to the temple, where these guys are the most important people. These guys are the most important people when it comes to the Jewish faith. If Jesus doesn't stop, the Romans are going to come and take away everything, which includes our special place, our honor, and our nation. So then we get this guy, Caiaphas, who interjects himself in the conversation here, one of the high, the high priests, one of the leaders. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, why is he explaining that? The high priest, as you know, would be the one who could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and make that. He's the big dog. He's the leader right now. So he's going to explain, you know nothing at all. <laughs> Good way to start. Encouragement. What he says there is consistent with the pride that they had, this group. They would not humble themselves before the Son of God. And the main guy shows to be the most prideful of all of them, leading them. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand, verse 50, that it's better for you, or some translations will say it's better for us, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Notice he doesn't even use Jesus' name. He just says, 
you're focusing, you're talking too much about this. Here's what we do, we take the guy out. We take the guy out. It's gonna be better for us. It's gonna be better for you, friends. It's gonna be better if we will take Jesus out because then we can keep on keeping on. We can still have our place. And now you're about to see one of the most remarkable things in this passage and how God works. And you may have missed it when we read over it, so listen carefully. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord. He didn't say that on his own accord, not his own thinking. Now, he does say it, and what he means by it is terrible. Let's wipe out Jesus. But look what it says. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He's prophesying what's actually happening at this moment. And he's speaking something for bad, for evil, for bad gain. And what is actually happening is God is speaking through him, showing his plan, his sovereign plan. The same words are coming out, but two different meanings. Some of you around here know what that's like, talking to your spouses or friends or kids. Something's coming out. They're thinking this. You're thinking that must mean this. But in this situation, what is incredible is he's thinking, we got to wipe out Jesus to save our place. And what God is doing is speaking through, oh yeah, Jesus needs to be wiped out to save the world. Not just your little nation and not just your place. Jesus would die for the nation in verse 52 and not for the nation only. See, they're closed-minded. It's about us. What God's saying through him is, no, no, it'll be greater than the nation but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Some of you who've been with us will remember back in chapter 10, Jesus says this when he's talking about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now listen, and I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. That was a chapter before. Right now, he's saying, he will bring them together. They are scattered abroad, and Jesus must die to bring them back together. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They made plans to kill him. And they thought they were doing the right thing by killing one guy so their nation would be free. And what they're actually doing is they are fulfilling the purposes of God. God is sovereignly working over them that yes, they will kill Jesus, but ultimately it's God who kills Jesus. Make no mistake, the plan of the scriptures is that God the Father kills Jesus for you and for me and for the nation's. And he will use them. This reminds you, or it should, of the story in Genesis with Joseph. There was a guy named Abraham. How many are familiar with Abraham? Yes? Abraham? Good. He has a son? Isaac. Good. Who has a son whose name was? Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, and his name gets changed to? Israel. Hey, you guys are doing good. All right? That's where we have the 12 tribes from these 12 sons. These 12 tribes of Israel. One of these sons... There's some prophecies about him. 
And his brothers say, we've got to get rid of him. He is annoying. Anyone know his name? Joseph. Joseph. Good. So they take Joseph, and they sell him. They're going to kill him, but they sell him to Egypt. And he goes down to Egypt. And it goes poorly for a while, but then God raises Joseph up. And Joseph becomes second over the whole nation. And what's interesting is through all that, God was actually doing something great. Because a big famine was about to come, and because Joseph was there, he was able to prophesy and explain that that was happening. So they saved all this food. And then Jacob and his sons, they have to go down to get some food, and they have this interesting interaction with their brother. And the story continues on. And as the story ends, what we see is that Jacob dies. And the brothers go, oh, we're in for it now. (laughs) Dad's dead. Because dad was alive, he was protecting us, but now Joseph is going to take it out on us because we were bad to him. And so they send a little messenger, and then they go and they fall at Joseph's feet. Oh, don't, don't, don't do anything. And he says, am I in the place of God? God will make this thing right. But what you meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. What Caiaphas means for evil God means for good. Brothers and sisters, I need you to hear something today. If you are a believer, a follower of Christ, that means he's working all things for your good. And what other people mean for evil in your life, God means for good. You need to believe that because sometimes there's a lot of evil and it's hard and it truly is evil, but realize that your God is so powerful that he turns it and uses it for your good. Let's see how the story continues. Now we've got a plan. Not only in the past we pick up stones to kill Jesus because he'd tick us off or he'd say something. Now we have a formal plan. We're going to take this guy out. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Wasn't his time yet. But went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. So he's getting close to the end of his life. He steps aside a little bit, spends some time with the disciples, kind of that close-knit family. He's not going to get out right now because the moment he does, we're going to see how quickly it progresses. It's not the time. Now to verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We're going to come back to this. Uh, verse, but just to say that this was one of the three big celebration feasts that all males were expected to go to. He's expected to go to this. This is his third and last Passover that he's going to be at. It's an important celebration, which we're going to talk about. So some people are up there purifying themselves. They're going to make themselves ready for the Passover. Let's move on. And we'll come back to it. Verse 56. They were looking for Jesus, right? Jesus is the talk of the town. Read this text with the kids last night. I said, what stands out to you? They're like, he's not even there and he's the talk of the town. Is Jesus the main talk of your life? Do people even know you follow Jesus? People who don't even follow him are talking about him. But sometimes we as Christians, we don't talk about him. We love to talk about politics. We love to talk about War, sports, our jobs, our families. But do we really talk about Jesus? These people, they're going up to purify themselves, and he's the topic of conversation. Jesus, they're saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? 
That he will not come to the feast at all? It's required for him to come. Is he going to dodge out? Is he not going to come? Oh, he's coming all right. Because it's the plan that the Father has set in place that he will faithfully follow. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. Here's what they said. Listen, we've got a plan to kill Jesus. Tell everybody that they better let us know if he shows up. If anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. That's where the passage ends. I want to go back up for a second to 55. This is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. Listen. Passover. Some of you are familiar with what the Passover is. Some of you, maybe not. Passover, first seen in Exodus, chapter 12. Here's what happens. Remember that story we were talking about with Joseph? Where he goes down to Egypt. They sold him into slavery. God raises him up. The Israelites were there in Egypt. And under the Pharaoh there, it was great. They were growing becoming very, very strong. Then a new pharaoh comes in and goes, "Eh, I don't like this. Another pharaoh, "Eh, we don't like this very much. So then they turn the Jewish people into slaves and they treat them poorly. And so God allows that as they continue to grow. Then they try to start killing their kids because they're getting too strong. That's what the Egyptians were going to do. And one of the little ones that gets spared is a guy named Moses. Familiar with him? Heard of Moses? Right. Moses comes on the scene. God raises him up in a very unique way and says, all right, y'all been here long enough. It's time to move on. So Moses gets his brother Aaron and they go and they're following the Lord and what he says for them to do. And they go to the Pharaoh and they try to convince him. Ten plagues. If you've ever read about the plagues, I feel like after number one, I'd have been like, get out of here. (laughs) God was going to use these plagues to convince the Egyptians the Pharaoh, that they need to let him go. But Scripture also tells us that God was using those plagues to show how Pharaoh would harden his heart and God would harden Pharaoh's heart against God and against the Israelites. So what they would continually do is, okay, fine, get out of here, but go worship and come back. And then Pharaoh would change his mind. And then God would send another plague. And it was bad. Finally, you get to the tenth plague. The tenth plague would be that the firstborn in every home would be killed. How about that? If you're a parent or grandparent, or you are the firstborn, think about that. God's coming to kill your firstborn. Or you, if you're the firstborn. Coming to kill you. Because you will not let his people go. That would be convincing. But here's what he says. It's not going to hurt his people as long as they listen and obey. Here's what they got to do. Take a lamb, slaughter it, blood, just like we were drinking here, right? Blood, not really blood, grape juice. Slaughter the animal as a sacrifice. Here's what you do. You take the blood, you put it over the doorposts. And what's going to happen is the angel of death is going to come. And if he sees the blood, passes over your house. No death of your firstborn. If you do not do that, your firstborn dies. So, they were to get ready, the Israelites, they were to do the sacrifice, they were to have their belt on, their cloak, eat some bitter herbs, they were to eat some bread that had no yeast in it, and be ready to roll. It comes, and the firstborn are killed. Indeed, the angel of death passes over them, they are saved, and they leave. Finally, they get released. And even still, Pharaoh comes after them at the Red Sea. 
And finally, God takes them out in his whole army. So they were to celebrate the Passover every single year. This is what became the beginning of their calendar. This is how important it is. Celebrate this every year. This is what Jesus was going to do. This is what they're doing. What's going on? Why mention the Passover? Why couldn't he just say, hey, he was in Jerusalem? It's because this is pointing as signs to more things about Jesus. Listen carefully. Bear with me. Here, follow along. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. What that means is they were going up to sacrifice lambs as they were supposed to do. Here's what's key. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. It should be up on the screen as well. Verses 6 through 8. It's going to be a little bit different, but... Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is actually an interesting chapter. It's uh, actually on church discipline. There's a guy who's being inappropriate with his stepmom or mother-in-law sexually, and Paul's saying, get him out of the church. Exercise church discipline. Like, okay, pastor, that's a weird passage for this morning. Listen carefully to what it says. 1 Corinthians 5. In the middle of him explaining this, Paul says, you need to get this guy out of here. Get him out of the church because... It's wrong what he's doing. See, the Corinthians, not only were they allowing sin to just be throughout the whole church, here's what they were doing. They were boasting in it. They were saying, hey, we're tolerant. You know that word. Hey, we're with the times. We know what the right thing to do is. And Paul says, you're wrong and it's sin and you need to repent and get this person out. Here's what he says, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't boast about this. You shouldn't be boasting. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you remember what I said when they eat the Passover? What they're not, they're supposed to eat bread without what? Yeast, leaven. Here's what happens a little bit of sin, brothers and sisters. You let that in and it spreads, just like yeast. If you let a little bit of sin in your life, if we let a little bit of sin in the church, it just spreads and destroys. And what they were to do at the Passover was to remember that all the time. So he goes there. Don't you know that you let this guy in the church and you let this go, it's going to spread to the whole church and the whole church will be destroyed. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Do you hear what he just said there? You yourselves are unleavened. You're righteous. You're without sin. Don't keep living in sin. Jesus has given you his righteousness. He took away all of your sin. It's gone. You are unleavened if you've trusted in Him. He's given you His righteousness. You really are unleavened. Some of you have trouble believing that. You still live with guilt and shame. Your sin has been washed away as far as the east is the west. It's gone. The blood, that's what it's about. For Christ, look at this, look at this, our Passover lamb, you hear what he called him? For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. They're all going up to the Passover to remember the blood that goes on the, the doorway so that death will pass over them. Christ is your Passover lamb, brothers and sisters. He is your Passover lamb. His blood that is on you is the mark that will mean that the angel of death passes over you. There's no death for you spiritually. You are saved because Christ is your Passover lamb. But guess what? You have to believe. Just like they had to do in the Old Testament, you've got to take the blood and put it on there. You have to have faith. 
And Christ is your Passover lamb. Rejoice in that. But here's what I want you to walk away with too. Rejoice in that, but listen. When they were going up to the Passover, they would purify themselves before going. Back in our 1 Corinthians 5 passage, verse 8 says this, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Let us celebrate that Jesus is our Passover. Let us rejoice. Not with old leaven. Turn away from our sin, right? The leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's the difference. They had to go purify themselves so they could go and celebrate that they were brought out of slavery and that God had passed over their sins. Here's the difference for the Christian now. Christ is your righteousness. You don't have to go and try to purify yourself before you come to the Passover lamb. He has done it all for you. He is your righteousness. So when you trust in Him, He takes away your sin and gives you His righteousness. You don't have to go purify yourself so you can go to Him. He's already done that. You have to accept it as a gift. So you don't purify yourself like they had to. You trust in Him. He purifies you. And you trust in your Passover lamb. And because you've trusted in Him, because you're made pure, stop living with sin in your life. It's already taken away. Why would you reintroduce yeast back into the equation? It's already out. You are unleavened. It's gone. So don't bring it back in, brothers and sisters. Don't bring it back in, even a little bit. So part of what we need to think about today. What are you letting in? What yeast is out there? What are you thinking about? What's coming even to your mind now? You have been made clean. Don't live unclean. You are, remember, you're not a slave anymore. You've been delivered from that. The Passover, you've been delivered from slavery. Why are you still living like a slave? Brothers and sisters, you've been set free. We have been set free. It gives us something great to rejoice about. Not that we have to purify ourselves, that He's already purified us. We have to have faith and walk that out. So here's our takeaways for today. I think I have five, for those of you who like lists. Some of you got really excited just now. You didn't care about the rest of the sermon. List! Yay! Number one, from what we talked about, what are you holding on to like the Pharisees and the chief priests were holding on to that is stopping you from believing in Jesus, right? They won't believe in Jesus, They're plotting to kill him. Even though they're seeing these signs, there's something stopping them. What was it? That they want their place. They want to be ruling. What is stopping you right now? If you're here and you don't know Jesus, what's stopping you from following him and believing in him? Get rid of that. If you are following Jesus, what's stopping you from really following him and committing? What might you have to die to? The second... Remember that God uses, just like Caiaphas, something evil he's trying to do. God in his sovereignty uses that for your good, Christian. So if you're going through something bad right now, if you're going through something hard, people are being evil to you, something is going on, realize God uses that for your good and trust him. Rejoice that Christ is your Passover lamb is the third 
Realize that you're not a slave, so stop living like one. Is the fourth. And celebrate the fact. This is the fifth one. Celebrate the fact in sincerity and truth that you are made clean. That Jesus is your substitute. Got a few teachers in here. Everyone know what a substitute is? Substitute teacher? Right? A couple? No? No? Okay. Not very many. Let me explain it to you. Sometimes you're at school and your teacher can't be there. And so what they do is this incredible thing. There are people who are substitutes, and they come in, and they teach in that person's place. In Genesis, in the early book of Genesis, Adam and Eve sinned, and they should have died for it, God said. He had a substitute, and he covered them with animal skin. Abraham had a son, Isaac, and he was told to go ahead and sacrifice him. And right before he was about to do it, God said, wait, there's a substitute. Take that ram and kill that as a substitute in its place. On the Passover, each family was to get a lamb and they were to kill it as a substitute so the angel of death would pass over them. On the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people, the high priest, they would kill a lamb. They would kill it as a substitute for the whole nation. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus is your substitute. You should have died. He died in your place. Not only for us, but for everyone who's ever lived. That's why at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what the substitute is. The atonement is where he dies in our place and takes our sin. He takes on the wrath of God. Rejoice. Live in the fact that God is your, Jesus is your substitutionary atonement. Okay? Those five things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time together. Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you have spoken to us today. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in here. I do pray that for those who are struggling right now, they have something holding them back in their lives right now. Lord, I pray they would just give that to you and they would truly believe and follow. For those who are in here who do not know you yet, Lord, I do pray that they would not be like the Pharisees and the chief priests who keep hearing about your signs, hearing what you're doing, and continually not believe. I pray their hearts would be soft. Lord, I pray you'd help us all in here who are struggling with things, maybe people who are evil, people who are hurting us, things that are happening, Lord, that we would realize that you are sovereign, you are good, and you work all things for good. And even as others are speaking, perhaps, hatred and lies, you are speaking truth. because we know what you say is true. Lord, help us to realize we are no longer slaves, but we are free. Help us to rejoice in the fact that you, Jesus, are our substitutionary atonement, that you have died in our place for our sins. And Lord, because we are unleavened, because of your righteousness, help us to not live any longer adding more yeast to our lives. Keep us pure. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.